If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 18. This morning, as we continue our uh, study of the parables of Jesus, we're going to be looking at um, Jesus' parable that is at the end of Matthew chapter 18 called the unforgiving servant. Now, as you look, as, as I like to do, I like to give you the context of the sermon because that is always important to helping us understand it. When you come to Matthew 18, this is the fourth of five teaching discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. So, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, um, the most famous discourse, teaching discourse, is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And then we have some commentary about Jesus traveling and healing the sick and some interspersed teachings, but then there's a longer section of teaching. And so here in Matthew 18, Jesus is about to head towards Jerusalem, and now instead of teaching the masses, he's drawing aside to teach his disciples what it's going to be like and what kind of principles they are to live under in his kingdom. Jesus knows he's going to the cross, he knows he's going to be betrayed, he knows that his disciples are going to be without him as he is as he dies, is crucified, is buried, and he ascends. And so in Matthew 18, Jesus draws them aside and teaches them the principles by which they need to use to relate to one another. So all of Matthew 18 is about how we relate to one another in Christ. What are going to be the things that keep us together? What are going to be the things that allow us to guard ourselves and walk in the way, in the, walk in the way Jesus would have us walk? in the midst of this world. And so, um, he's going to outline, basically in Matthew 18, six kingdom principles for how we relate to each other. They're very pertinent for the church. They're written for God's people living in community together. So, I just want to read Matthew 18 as we go through it so you can get the context, okay? So, beginning there in verse 1, verses 1 through 4, you'll see that Jesus talks about the priority of humility, that his kingdom will be based on us relating to one another in humility. He says there, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. So Jesus says we have to come in childlike faith and dependence on him, that we are not to look down on children or those that struggle or those that we think are weak because the kingdom isn't built on strength or, or stature. It's built on faith and dependence. And then the second principle is Jesus says, in my kingdom, we're going to welcome those like that the weak and the helpless and the strugglers. Look there at verse 5. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We're to receive the little, the little ones and the weak and the helpless because that's what Jesus does in his kingdom. And that's based on humility, right? That we don't look down on other people, but we come alongside them and welcome them. So humility. Second, welcoming the weak. Third, and Jesus says, you need to understand in my kingdom, there's still going to be temptation and struggles with sin. It's not going to disappear because you become a believer. Look there in verses uh, 5 and following. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes 
one of these little ones who believe in me, notice they're believers, they're still struggling with sin, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And Jesus says, if your, if, your hand causes, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So Jesus says, hey, you better understand temptation. And you better learn to walk in holiness because we have to walk in a way that doesn't cause others to sin because sin is serious. That's part of walking in humility, welcoming the weak, understanding that temptation and holiness, uh, temptation is going to come and we're still called to walk and be aware of what's going on. And then fourth, Jesus says that in his kingdom, we have to pursue the strugglers, those that actually fall into temptation to sin. We have to pursue the strugglers with compassion and mercy. Look there, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Not just speaking of children, but those who struggle. Those who are weak and wayward. He says, not only do you not look down on them, you, you welcome them and don't despise them. He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, we've looked at this parable, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So despite our failing and faltering, God per compassionately pursues us as a shepherd pursues his lost sheep. And in God's kingdom, we have to, be that kind of we have, to have that kind of compassion. That we don't despise those that are struggling and push them out and hurt them unnecessarily. Jesus says, no, in compassion and mercy, we pursue them. Even though we also don't lead them into temptation and we walk in holiness. And then, in verses 15, Jesus says here that we are to pursue, we are, as we pursue the, the wayward, we still have to be serious about sin. We still have to be serious about repentance. And we have to restore those that come back. If we go pursue them, when we bring them back and they're willing to repent, we have to receive them and welcome them again as they are restored into fellowship with the body. Look at verses 15 and following. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He doesn't say go put it on Instagram or on Facebook. Go talk to them. Be a man or a woman. Go talk to them and tell them the fault. He says, if they listen to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others. These should be mature believers along with you, that every charge may be established and by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. So Jesus expects in his kingdom that all believers are walking in humility, chasing after the wayward, walking in holiness, and they're connected to a church. This is why we're in relationship with each other. And so he says, and let, and says, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Does that mean be mean? No, how does Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? He's compassionate and merciful. 
and he tries to reach them and he tries to lead them to repentance. All right? And then he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, if two, if two of you agree on any, about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then Peter's listening. And that brings us to our point of the sermon this morning, that we have a responsibility in God's kingdom to model gospel forgiveness from the heart. And we can't hold grudges. We have to model gospel forgiveness when our brother sins against us and they come back and they're walking and they're trying to walk in repentance. It is our obligation, gospel obligation, to forgive them. Look what he says. Peter's listening and look at now following. He says, Peter, then Peter, listening to all of this, came up and said, Lord, well, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is the parable. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master had ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had, and payment to be made to the servant. Sorry, um, he, he, he was ordered him to be sold, his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, begging him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, his, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So Jesus ends this discourse with the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now this parable ties together several of the key themes that we've seen in all of Jesus' parables. The theme of God's already but not yet kingdom. The theme of mercy, surprising mercy, the theme of God's coming judgment, and the theme of our responsibility in how we are to walk as disciples. So let's kind of break this apart, and I want to go through it as quickly as I can. Notice that our text, verses 21 and 22, begin when Peter poses a question about forgiveness, right? So Peter asked Jesus, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? Now, Peter's been with Jesus, you need to know this, Peter's been with Jesus well over two years up to this point in his ministry. And so Peter has been learning and he's been hearing Jesus teach extensively on the nature of God's kingdom. And Peter's been learning and growing all through these two and a half years. Now, he still puts his foot in his mouth from time to time, just like the rest of us. But Peter's been growing. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus rightly confesses Jesus as the Christ. When they say, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And, Peter, and, God, and Jesus says, that's right, Peter. God has revealed that to you. You are absolutely right. And so here, Peter raises a question based on what Jesus has just said about forgiving a brother who sinned against him. Now, this topic of forgiveness was hotly debated among rabbis throughout Jewish history. In fact, Tractate Joma, written by Rabbi, Rabbi Jos ben Judah, says this. He says, if a brother sins against you once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. But a fourth time, do not forgive him. That was the rabbinical teaching that was going around. Peter was most likely familiar with these historical debates and had probably heard Jesus in these kind of debates with the scribes and Pharisees. And so Peter must be thinking here something like this. Hey, Jesus, if the rabbis teach to forgive only three times, then certainly forgiving seven times is incredibly generous and gracious, right? I mean, seven's the perfect number in the Bible. So I'm being incredibly generous, aren't I, Jesus? Maybe we can split the difference and forgive them five times. You know, kind of hit the middle road here. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, no, Peter. No, Peter. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' point isn't that we keep count of forgiving people up to 490 times. The point of Jesus is that we do not count at all. You are not allowed to count. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. The Bible tells us that God, when he forgives us, he casts our sin as far away as the east is from the west. So the point is that forgiveness and keeping count of forgiveness do not go together. Now before we fault Peter too much and come down on Peter as though he's wrong, we have to consider that at least Peter had the courage to ask Jesus this incredible question. He knew, Peter knew that, that Jesus' kingdom prized forgiveness. He's heard Jesus preach about forgiveness and mercy. And so Peter wants to know what is the extent of this mercy that is given to other people. And it's only because of Peter that we have this question answered for us and recorded in scripture. So I'm glad Peter asked the question or we wouldn't have the answer. So before we get on to him, let's keep that in mind, okay? And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't simply stop at saying that we should forgive our brother 70 times 7. That's not where Jesus stops with his question. No, as a master teacher, Jesus takes this question and expands his answer by sharing a parable about the transforming power of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's what this parable is about. The transforming power of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. It's a story of our, the, the grace we have received and our responsibility to forgive. Now, before I walk through the parable, let me remind you of a few points about how we handle parables. I've talked about these all the time. And we have to understand that we have to handle parables as parables. So, first... Jesus says that this parable is a comparison parable. It is, it, is, it is showing us something about what the kingdom of God is like. It's not a one-to-one -one allegory. 
Okay, everything in this parable doesn't correspond with something else. All right, that's not the point of it. It's simply a story that shows what the kingdom of God is like in some sense. And second, and wait, wait, and because of that, because it's just a simple story that compares, we need to limit our comparisons to the main points that Jesus makes. So you might think I need to say a lot more than I say, but there's a reason I don't say everything that I think. I'm going to say what, what Jesus' main points are, okay? So second, we, we have to remember this. A parable also doesn't say everything we might want it to say about a certain topic. In this case, judgment. This parable has a lot to say about judgment, but it doesn't say everything you might want to know about judgment. So parables can teach us and illustrate for us theological truths, but they were never meant to be taken as whole theologies, okay? We have to read a parable in light of all of Scripture, okay? Because there are some people who try to say this, this text says some things that it probably doesn't say and Jesus never intended for it to say, like, does God change his mind about our salvation? That's not what this parable is about, okay? It's just to illustrate a point. So, with that being said, I want to give you four gospel principles here that we have to keep in mind about the transforming power of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So, let's look at the parable again. So, here they are, four points, and I promise they'll be brief, and then we will move on. Here they are. Number one, this parable teaches us first that we must all give an account to our king. We must all give an account to our king. Look there at verse 23. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now Jesus makes this clear throughout many passages in the Gospels. Jesus speaks frequently about God's coming judgment and the need for us to be prepared to stand before him. That we need to be ready, repent, the, the, repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand is what Jesus preached. He preached about fleeing the wrath to come when God brings his righteous judgment on evildoers. In fact, several other parables, like the parable of the ten virgins who were waiting on judgment, the parable of the talents, when, God, when Jesus says one is given five, one is given another number, and one is given another, and then they have to, at the end of all of that, the master comes and they have to settle up their accounts. Many of the parables deal with God's coming judgment. All people must give an account for their lives. As Hebrew 9.27 says, it is appointed for a man once to die, and after that the judgment. So the main point here at the very beginning is all of us must give an account to our king. In the kingdom of God, an account will be taken. That should rightly wake us up and make us live circumspectly, knowing that this is true. No one gets to escape. The Bible says all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the first thing this parable teaches us. Second, second, not only must we all give an account to our king, this parable teaches us and reminds us that we all owe a debt that cannot be paid. All of us owe a debt due to sin that cannot be paid. Look at verses 24 through 25. He says, and when the king began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold 
with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, the man in question here owed the king 10,000 talents. You should look at the footnote right there beside that in your Bible and go down to the bottom to see what a talent is actually worth. Use this time in your Bible to familiarize yourself with your footnotes. Look at that. It should have a one or a two or a four or maybe a letter. Go down to the bottom and find that in your Bible. The Bible tells us the scales. Now, according to scholars, a talent was a, a measurement of weight for gold, silver, or copper. It varied, but was between approximately 60 and 90 pounds. This man owed between 60 and 90 pounds times 10,000. Okay? This, this scholar goes on to say 10,000 talents would be about 204 metric tons. Depending on which metal was used, a, and a talent was the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii, which would make the first servant's debt 60 million denarii at one denarius a day. That was the day laborer's wage. It would require this day laborer over 164,000 years to repay. In modern terms, let me just say this, in my, in my quote, in modern terms, depending on the price of gold at this moment, when I checked it on Thursday, this man owed a little over $3 trillion. Now, let me just say, this is an astronomical figure. Almost unbelievable, right? We might be tempted here to think that Jesus is intentionally using hyperbole by using such a large sum. However, if you'll remember in your Bible, in Esther 3.9, it says that Haman promised 10,000 talents to King Xerxes for the destruction of the Jews. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, says that Pompey exacted more than 10,000 talents from the Jews after his conquest of Israel. The point remains here that sinners, as sinners, we owe a debt that cannot be paid. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And everyone's wage, because of their sin, they will stand before God and owe a debt to which they cannot pay. And I'll remind you that sin is only as heinous as the dignity of the one sinned against. And when you sin against the eternally righteous and holy King of kings and Lord of lords, you have committed an eternal treason, which will require an eternity to pay which is why there is no end in sight for judgment. So, we all owe a debt that cannot be paid. Number two. So, point number one, we must all give an account to our king. We all owe a debt that cannot be paid. And here is the gospel. Number three, and our king is astonishingly gracious and merciful. Astonishingly gracious and merciful. Look at verses 26 and 27. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, compassion for him, out of mercy for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. This man realizes the dire circumstances he is in, and he begs for mercy. He even promises to pay the debt. Let me just say this, which is preposterous. 
The king doesn't forgive him because he promises to pay the debt. He can't. There is no way. That'd be like me coming to you and asking you for $3 trillion. If you have it, I'd like to know. But it's preposterous to think that this man could beg for mercy and then the, the king forgive him based on his promise to be able to pay it. The king doesn't forgive him based on that. There's no possible way he could pay it. The king knows it and doesn't care. Just as the debt is astronomical, just as astronomical as the debt is, so surpassing is the king's mercy. It is unbelievable. Our king is astonishingly gracious and merciful. This is amazing grace and mercy. Just go read Ephesians chapter 2. Go read Romans, where, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That God rescued us and saved us and forgave us our debts, and so that in the ages to come, He could display in us the glorious riches of His kindness and grace towards us. Astonishingly gracious and merciful. And then fourth, and because of that, this is what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. We must all give an account to our king. We all owe a debt that cannot be paid. Our king is astonishingly gracious and merciful. And fourth, we are responsible. We are responsible to extend the same grace and forgiveness we have received to others. This transforming grace comes with responsibility. It is our responsibility to extend it. Look at verses 28 through 35. It says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a trifling figure, just a couple thousand dollars, a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him in the same way he did with the master, have patience with me and I will repay you. He's probably telling the truth. He doesn't owe three trillion. He owes a couple thousand. He can probably work that out, even as a day laborer. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants, don't miss that, these are servants in relationship, in community, they're disturbed by this behavior of a fellow servant. It says, and when, they, when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, this is Jesus' teaching point, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, my disciples, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, do you notice the mandate from the king in verses 32 and 33? From the perspective of the gospel, mercy received is mercy owed. Let that sink in. From the perspective of the gospel, mercy received is mercy owed to others. God expects us to live out gospel forgiveness towards others because if we don't forgive, if we withhold forgiveness, we are ultimately lying to the world about the truth of the gospel. That's what it means. That's what unforgiveness ultimately means. It means you don't believe the gospel. 
I can't say it more seriously than that. God forgives us fully and freely. Amen? That's how God forgives us, by grace and mercy. God forgives us fully and freely, and He expects no less from His disciples who are swimming in the sea of His grace and mercy. It is critical to our own spiritual well-being and for the sake of our witness in the world that we rightly represent the gospel of grace to those around us. There's no getting off the hook with this, with Jesus. And there's another gospel issue here at work in our forgiveness that you need to know. There's another gospel issue here, and it's the issue of the atonement. It's the issue of the price that Christ paid for us on the cross when he died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Think about this. If Jesus died and paid our debt so that we could be forgiven, you cannot force others to pay it to us. You cannot force someone else to pay their debt to you. Let me say it this way. In our unwillingness to forgive, if you were unwilling to forgive, you are demanding that their debt be paid to you. In effect, you are saying that Jesus did not pay for their sin and they must do it themselves. They must make atonement for their sins to us. And I want to say that is absolutely anti-gospel. It, that is the antithesis of the gospel, the opposite of the gospel. If we pridefully and arrogantly withhold forgiveness, we actually destroy the foundation of the gospel in our own lives. This is why forgiveness and the believer's willingness to forgive is such a huge issue, especially in how we relate to one another as a body of believers. Now, there is a key biblical principle that has to take root in us for us to be able to forgive like this. Because listen, I know when I'm talking, you're like, Jacob, this is hard. Yeah. Jesus, did you read in here where Jesus said this would be easy? That's not in my version. It's not easy. This is one of the most difficult things you will ever face in your life. So, the, but this is, but you, you have to begin with this key biblical thought that we see throughout the New Testament. It's this. No one has offended God more than me. No one. No one who does anything to me can offend me more than they've offended God. I have offended God more than they could ever offend me. My sin is always more heinous than theirs. You have to begin there. Listen, you have to begin like Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. That's me, Jacob. I am the chief of sinners. And if I can know that about myself, then I can draw upon God's grace and forgiveness in order to extend it towards others. If I am swimming in the ocean of God's grace, then I should have more than enough to share with others around me. And what this means is, if this is very difficult for you, because some people really, this is their spiritual battle. Forgiveness, bitterness, resentment, this is their spiritual battle. This is the one they face every day, where others, it's greed, pride, lust, or something else. But this is a real spiritual battle. And I want to say that if that is you, then you might need to have a serious conversation with your own heart about it. It might go something like this, a little role playing. Did they hurt me? Yes, they really did. 
It's painful. It's horrible. It's possibly even evil and criminal. Yeah, that's true. Yes. So should there, should there be consequences to their sin and behavior? Probably, yes. There could be social consequences, even criminal consequences because of their sin. Yeah. So don't I have the right to hold a grudge and withhold forgiveness? No. Absolutely not. Unequivocally, no. Without exception, no. You don't have that right. I must not drink the poison of bitterness and unforgiveness because it will destroy my own soul. Christ died for me and forgave me by His grace. And He did the same for them. So heed the warning of King Jesus. Look at the warning. There is a serious warning here. If you do not forgive, you have not been forgiven. Oh, Jacob, are you sure? I didn't say that. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says, if you do not forgive, you are not forgiven. After all, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Every day, if you say the model prayer, how do you pray? Father, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, as we, as we, in the same way that we have forgiven those who sin against us, those who trespass against us, those who are indebted to us, not monetarily, but spiritually. Now here in conclusion, I want to say it this way. It's not enough to mouth words. Jesus says at the end that you must forgive from your heart. Forgiveness is a gospel issue of the heart. Now let me just read, let me close with what one commentator said, because he said it better than me. He says here, once again, we see how opposed Matthew is to cheap grace. We don't believe in cheap grace, people. You don't get to receive Jesus' grace and then act like it doesn't matter towards other people. He says, it will not do to claim to be forgiven and then prove by our actions that our lives have not been changed. The pardon of God is dynamic and life-changing. We cannot go through heaven's narrow door if our lives are bulging with resentments. Heaven is for repentant sinners only. Those who know themselves freed from a debt they can never pay and who prove their gratitude by their lives. God puts His precious gift of forgiveness in our hands, but only if we open them up to Him and not clench them in anger against our brothers. And then he says here, there is no escaping it by pious platitudes about God's willingness to forgive us whatever we do. His forgiveness is indeed inexhaustible, but it can be received only by those who repent. And resentment has to be repented of. It utterly blocks us from receiving and enjoying the forgiveness we long for. When someone says, I cannot forgive so and so for what he or she has done to me, the answer is clear. You must forgive or you will never be forgiven by God. You will exclude yourself from his presence now and from heaven later if you do not repent of this attitude. 
How can God forgive you if you will not forgive? It is a serious matter. It begins by having a life that's transformed by the gospel. Recognizing that you must give an account before your king. And you owe a debt that you cannot pay. But Jesus has graciously paid that debt and forgiven it for you. If you will receive it by repentance and faith. And then let that transform your life. As you are unleashed into this world with grace and gratitude. Even towards those who persecute you and mistreat you. So if you don't know Jesus, that's where you start. If you do know Jesus, then you need to make sure you're walking this out. And so if you have something against a brother or a sister, you make that right. Eternity hangs in the balance. I'm not going to take the teeth out of Jesus' warning. If you do not forgive, you have not been forgiven. If you're looking for a church home, we'll invite you to be a part of us later. But we're going to pray, and then we're going to move to a time of communion. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, I pray that it has fallen with freshness on our hearts and minds. And Father, may we live out the gospel. Father, because we know we can only forgive sin that has been forgiven. And so, Father, we know that in Christ we've been given everything we need to walk in gospel forgiveness towards others. So, Father, bless our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name.